Hi everybody, it's your girl here Patrice and we're back for episode 3 of A is for Alien podcast. The podcast where we discuss the paranormal and mysterious events, people and places in alphabetical order in this weird and wonderful world of ours. And uh, yeah, so this week i got a great show lined up for you. Well, at least I thought it was a great show until I threw up an Instagram poll asking if you think clairvoyants are true or trash and 75% of you came back and said that it was trash. So, yeah, let's see if that <laughs> crosses over and relates to how many of you listen to this week's podcast. Before we get into the meat of the show, just a quick couple of housekeeping issues. If you're listening to this on YouTube and you have not yet subscribed to my channel, you can quickly do so without any hustle or fa- hassle by pressing the little icon in the bottom right hand corner of your screen and just pressing subscribe. And also, if you wouldn't mind, if it's not too much trouble, um, if you press the like button, that really helps people see me in the algorithm. And if you're feeling extra open and extra friendly, throw me down a comment. And uh, yeah, it can be about anything. Just tell me how your week's been because I love checking in with you guys. People who have listened to me for a while know that I love uh, the interaction with the listeners. And yeah, whatever you want to talk about. Tell me how your week's been. Tell me what's on your mind. You know, whatever. Just throw it down in the comments. And I respond to every comment. So there you go. If you're listening on a streaming service though or on a podcast platform, uh, it really helps if you follow me and leave a review. So if you can just leave me a nice review, I'd really appreciate that as well. Thank you so much. All right, well, that's enough about me. So let's get on with this business. So the topic for this week's episode is clairvoyant, see for clairvoyant. And, you know, when I was planning this episode and writing it, you know, I was tossing up for what, what kind of direction I would go in, you know, and I thought, do I scare the shit out of them with like demon talk? And, you know, but then I thought, oh, no, that can just wait till next week. So I'll do that next week. So this week, I thought what we'd do is we'd talk about what it actually means to be clairvoyant, you know, because it's such a blanket term. And I feel like there is so many different types of clairvoyance. I've got a guest coming on, Gabby, who's a holistic spiritual healer and counselor. And so she's going to help me understand all the different kinds of clairvoyant psychic abilities. So I'm really excited for you to meet Gabby. And for the listener story today, I'm really excited because it heralds back the return of one of my favorite anomalous entities, and that is shadow people. And yeah, because I didn't really get any stories about clairvoyance or clairvoyant experiences. Like everybody did. I've got some short ones that people shared with me um, on Instagram, but I feel like because it's clairvoyant, we're talking psychics, we're talking this and that. I feel like shadow people is actually like a form of a psychic attack almost and that they are from a different kind of realm. So I'm locking in a shadow being story and yeah, I'll take this opportunity too that if you're listening to this right now and you have any listener story of anything fucking strange, anything bizarre that you've experienced, cryptids, ghosts, aliens, I want to hear from you. My email address is a is for alien podcast at gmail.com and do what your other internet brethren have done and send me through your bizarre stories because I love it. It's like crack to me. Okay, so the most logical place to start this story would be at the beginning. When we think of clairvoyance in a modern 
construct, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. It's impossible to think of clairvoyance without thinking of the New Age movement, which kind of became popular from about the 1840s and really reached a fever pitch, uh, you know, in the late 1800s. I only want to briefly touch on this because I am fascinated by this subject because it has all of my favorite elements like spirituality, Victoriana. A lot of people don't realize, though, that modern esotericism is actually born out of a response of the scientific rationality that was happening, you know, in the new industrial age. So a lot of people were rejecting religion in favor of science. And so what would happen then is they created this almost middle ground of going, well, you know, religion doesn't explain it all. But then there's also these little leftover parts that science doesn't explain. So what do we call that? Like, and how do we explore that? So the way that I see the New Age movement was kind of almost like a social experiment exploring the stranger parts of the world which couldn't be answered by science or religion and with the introduction of you know the newly fallen middle class from the industrial revolution people had money that they were spending and they were spending it on you know holidays so they were traveling for the first time and they were going to all these kind of you know exotic destinations like they were going out to the colonies they were seeing Egypt they were going to India and so there was kind of almost this mingling of different spiritualities and different religious influences as well which people were intrigued by so it's often accepted that the mother and one of the earliest influences of what we would consider the new age movement now was a Russian woman called Elena Bavlasky. she created the Theosophical Society in the late 1800s and yeah, she's a very intriguing woman. She spent a lot of time under uh, different yogis in India. She brought back the knowledge that she found in those areas to the Western world. And she wrote two books that were of major influence, uh, The Isis Unveiled in 1877 and also The Secret Doctrine in 1888. And the Theosophical Society still exists now and it has a very loyal following of people who believe in the teachings that she that she brought to the world. Basically, the Theosophical Society, I have a real, I struggle so hard saying that word, the Theosophical Society purport to be a group that conveys the essence of all religions. So they say that not everything is right, not everything is wrong. They kind of have a focus on comparative religion where you just take what you want from each part. You take all the good bits that you want from each kind of religion, which, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with because I do believe that there are good and bad aspects of all religions and belief modalities. So amongst the people that Elena Bavlasky was very influential to was Alastair Crowley and his kind of versions of occultism and what he believed in. And also on the opposite side of that, she was also very influential to a gentleman named Edgar Casey. So where Alastair Crowley was more known for being more of the dark, Edgar Casey, on the other hand, was known for approaching spirituality with more of a Christian mindset. And if you know a thing or two about the Bible, that's kind of almost a funny sentiment because 
Basically, all the things that he was doing and talking about was the occult, plain and simple. And a lot of people would even go as far to say that it was demonic because in the Bible, it specifically talks about being forbidden to be kind of conjuring familiar spirits or partaking in any kind of fortune telling or future telling. Edgar Cayce, though, who is the star of our show today, kind of rose to prominence, though, in the 1920s due to something which we would now call faith healing. So he was able to do this thing where he would put himself into a trance, have minimal information about a certain person, and then be able to feed back to them information about ailments that they have and what they could do to fix them. He would do this by allegedly being able to access a person's Akashic record. And I will go into what the Akashic records are in greater detail shortly. So Edgar Cayce was born on March 18th in 1877 near Beverly, just south of Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Hopkinsville, Kentucky is, of course, the scene of the Hopkinsville Goblins, the UFO little alien encounter that happened there. So straight off the bat, when Edgar was a child, he alleged to have seen his deceased grandfather. He said that he could see through him. So that's a pretty good kind of description of a ghost, I guess. He was absolutely fascinated with the Bible and he would read it like multiple times, even as a child. And when he was about 12 years old, he was reading the Bible in a forest and a woman with wings appeared to him. And she said to him, your prayers have been answered. What do you want more than anything in the world? He said that he was frightened, but he said what he wanted more than anything in the world was to help other people and especially to help sick children. And he decided that he wanted to become a missionary for the church. See, I'm already sus on this because, I don't know, I feel like if he's read the Bible a million times, he would know that you're not meant to be talking to people or spirits that appear to you because then they're not meant to appear to you like that. Especially to ask you what you want more than all because your prayers have been answered. You know, like an angel appeared to the Virgin Mary, but they are used as messengers of God. They're not like wish granters. And it was kind of from this point on after he had this encounter with the woman with wings that he kind of realized that whatever these spirits were, they still kind of had a presence with him. So he got into a lot of trouble with his dad because the teacher said that he didn't know how to spell. So basically it says his dad was even, you know, like had a bit of a fight with him, like knocked him out of his chair because he couldn't get his spelling right. So he heard the voice of the woman they had seen the day before saying, look, if you just have a little sleep, we can help you. So he put his head on his spelling books and he just kind of fell asleep. And then when he woke back up, he knew all the answers in the book. He could repeat anything in the book, could repeat how it was spelt, what was in it. And basically his dad was like, oh, so now you're just trying to be an idiot. And so he got in trouble again because he thought that it was him being like a smart ass, I guess. And kind of from this point on, that's how he would learn things. So when he wanted to learn something, he'd be able to have a nap on a book and he would just know everything in the book. And yeah, it was kind of a really bizarre thing because he ended up becoming the best student in class because he knew everything in the books. Eventually, he began diagnosing things in his sleep and it started with an injury on himself where he was like hit in the back with a baseball and he said that he fell asleep and when he woke up, he kind of knew the cure and asked his family to prepare it for him and he cured himself as he slept. So Casey was only educated up to the eighth grade because his family were a working class family and they couldn't afford an education kind of higher than that. 
So basically just started looking for jobs and looking for a wife, just the kind of things that young men would do at that time. And he ended up becoming engaged to Gertrude Evans in 1897. And throughout his life, and especially during this time as a young man, he was always very devoutly Christian. So he was a member of the Disciples of Christ Church, and he would read the Bible every year, attend church, and he was also a Sunday school teacher. So you can imagine the conflict in him when he could see auras around people, spoke to angels, and could hear the voices of departed relatives because he, more than anybody, would know that none of that stuff is allowed. So, yeah, in the Bible, it specifically says in multiple fucking places not to do that. So here, Isaiah eight nineteen says... When they say, shall unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that they mutter, should not people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? So that basically means, why do you need to ask questions of the dead for the living? Like you should be looking at the Bible and you should be asking your Lord for help, not talking to something which isn't the Lord. Um, And then in Deuteronomy, it says, there shall not be found among you one that maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire or that uses divination or observer of times or an enchanter or a witch. Yeah, so to me, it's pretty clear that it's not something that he should be doing if he wants to be living that Christian life. But he kind of made it more like it was a prophetic gift that he was given. So I guess he made it work for him. I don't know if it works that way, but he, he that's what he did. That's how he that's how we played it. And that's how we came up with like, you know, Christian mysticism. So he started a business partnership with his dad selling insurance. But it was then in 1900 that he was struck with uh, laryngitis and he had it for an entire year and he wasn't able to speak properly. So he wasn't able to sell insurance. So, so far he's an insurance salesman that speaks to demons. Okay, got it. I don't know. It all seems a little bit sus to me, but you know, this is the story. So then in 1901, a traveling stage hypnotist named Hart who referred to himself as the laughing man was in Hopkinsville and he had heard about Casey's throat condition and had offered a cure under hypnosis. So Casey went and was hypnotized by this guy and apparently he just talked normally under hypnosis but then when he was out of the hypnotic trance he couldn't talk again. So I think everyone was a little bit freaked out by that. So the hypnotist tried to put in post-hypnotic suggestions so that the voice would work after the trance had ended but that had failed and Hart the hypnotist had said it was because Casey was refusing to go into the third stage of hypnosis and take the suggestion. So then another hypnotist from New York called Dr. John Duncan Quackenvoss. What a fucking name. Quackenvoss. Dr. Quackenvoss. I love that last name. He found the same problem that Casey wasn't able to take a hypnotic regression. And he suggested that Casey should take over his own case while in the second stage of hypnosis so that he took control of his hypnosis. I'm obviously clearly no expert on how hypnosis works, but I imagine that that must be some kind of, you know, self-induced trance state that he was suggesting that he was in, which might help him cure this ailment of not being able to speak so the local hypnotist Al Lane offered to help Casey with these subsequent sessions and this is kind of where it gets a little bit fucking weird he would lay down in this trance and be in a hypnotic state and then he would say we have the body and that would indicate that the connection was made with you know whoever was 
um, hypnotizing him or another kind of entity. And uh, I don't know, that just sounds like you're possessed by something that freaks me out. So every now and then he would have relapses where he'd stop talking again. So then he'd have to go back to this hypnotist, our lane, and be put back under. And one of these times, the hypnotist asked him to describe his own ailments. So Lane asked Casey to describe Lane's ailments and suggest cures while he was in this hypnotic state. And reportedly, the answers and the cures were both accurate and effective. And Lane, the hypnotist, considered this clairvoyance. So Lane was like, we need to take this to the road. This is amazing. You know, you should start doing this for the public. But Casey was really reluctant because he didn't remember anything that he'd said. So when he was asleep, he was like asleep. So he had no idea what he was prescribing or whether it was safe or anything. Still, his hypnotist friend was really persuasive. Eventually, Edgar Casey agreed, but under the condition that the readings would be free. So that's when he started offering free treatments to the townspeople. The treatment was described as a self-imposed hypnotic trance that included clairvoyance. Eventually, word of Casey reached the newspapers, and so he started getting letters from people too. And by using only their name and their location he was able to provide them with a remedy. So he was still a little bit like sus on the whole thing. And he was quoted to have said one dead patient was all that he needed to become a murderer. And, you know, like it's kind of true. I guess it's considered almost like homeopathy, you know, like it's you're not taking medical advice. You're taking advice from somebody who's involved in pseudoscience. And on top of all this as well, you have to remember that he was grappling with his devout Christianity and (laughs) this stuff wasn't really allowed and it was against the doctrine. So between the years of 1905 and 1912, he had gone through a fair bit of kind of personal financial disaster. So he was a photographer by trade after he had not been able to work for his dad with the insurance company, he had become a um, photographer and he had two photography studios that burnt down. He'd entered into a dodgy business deal with a homeopath called Wesley H. Ketchum and that kind of all went pear-shaped. His wife Gertrude became fatally ill with tuberculosis and um, yeah, it wasn't until Edgar Casey had decided to go under hypnotic trance to kind of heal herself that he also kind of realised that Ketchum was deceiving them and that he had been using them to gamble their finances. All the while during this time, his fame's been growing, like people are still asking him questions. He's still giving out this kind of, these readings, this advice. But it was in 1912 that he kind of decided that even though he wouldn't charge for readings per se, he did start to accept money to support him as donations. He always had people coming to him, trying to ask him like where hidden treasure was, like what horses are going to win that weekend. And even like stock market people, like what's the price of cotton going to be this week? But he always kind of refused that kind of work and that kind of money because he just really wanted to help people. Remember, that's what he said to the angel in the, in the woods that time. So in 1923, a gentleman named Arthur Lammers, who was a wealthy businessman and a student of metaphysics, persuaded Casey to give him a reading on philosophical subjects. And it was when he was under that trance state, he spoke of Lammers' past lives and of reincarnation. And the thing was that reincarnation was quite popular during that time, during the 20s, but it wasn't something that Casey personally believed in because it's obviously not Christian to believe in reincarnation. 
People don't know whether or not he had ever referred to it prior to 1923. There was people who believed that maybe 12 years prior he'd spoken about the transmitigation of soul. But this is the first official time that he was talking about reincarnation and past lives. And it was in 1925 when he was, you know, in the mature years of his life that he decided to move to Virginia Beach as the voice had instructed him that the crystals of the sand have curative purposes and promote rapid healing. And so he moved to Virginia Beach and at this point he was a professional psychic and he had employees working for him and volunteers. And from this kind of point on till his death in 1945, the readings became more occult and had more esoteric themes to them. It was around this time too that the American Medical Association was kind of cracking down on people like Edgar Casey. So he believed that it was time to legitimize his practice with the aid of licensed medical practitioners. It's kind of interesting because the the things that were coming out of his readings in the 1920s and the remedies that he was telling people, it just seems like good practice now. Whereas back then, you know, it wasn't really what doctors would say. Like he would talk about massage and diet and, you know, relaxing and meditation and even like electrotherapy um, as remedies for cures, which now we know do actually have some kind of medicinal weight behind them. So Edgar Casey had this idea of creating a hospital essentially, but, you know, due to world events in the 1920s, money wasn't really around. Like he had the help of some financial backers, but the idea of a fully-fledged hospital just wasn't possible. But once they started to, you know, conduct readings again in Virginia Beach, they met a man named Morton, Morton Blutenmanthal, and he worked on the stock exchange with his brother. They were very interested in Edgar Casey's work, and they offered to finance his operation, and better yet, in the spirit of how Edgar Casey wanted the business to run. And so they bought them a house at Virginia Beach for them to be able to operate out of. 1928, a hospital complex was opened and to get around any kind of like legal issues, anybody that was there to be treated by having a reading with Casey and the subsequent treatments um, would sign like a disclosure form to say that they were there to be like a subject in a psychic experiment. And yeah, by all intents and purposes, it sounds beautiful. It had a lecture hall, a library, a vault for the storage of all the readings. It had offices for the workers, a living room, 12-car garage, servants' quarters, tennis courts, the whole lot. Sounded incredible. Treatments that people were given were all kind of, you know, left to field a little bit kind of modern, I guess, for that time. So salt packs, hot compresses, color healing, magnetism, vibrator treatment, massage, osteopathic manipulation, dental therapy, colonics, enemas, antiseptics, inhalers, homeopathics, essential oils, mud baths, like all of those kind of things that you spend a fortune on now they were doing in the 1920s <laughs> so eventually there were these plans of there being like a psychic university that would kind of dwarf the hospital so people could go there and you know be studying psychic phenomena it opened in 1930 but basically only after a semester one of the patrons ceased to support of the university and then in the following February he closed down the entire association so Casey just took all of his readings from the hospital and took them home so that kind of dream was like dead in the water after that 
during the depression years, Edgar Casey's attention changed more to like spiritual teachings. So people wanted to know how they could be psychic like him. He created these study groups and from his altered state, he would tell people that it was less about being psychic and it was more about becoming more spiritually aware and being a more loving person. So being psychic per se wasn't the be all and end all. It's about using those psychic abilities to do good amongst who you're around. This is when the readings kind of changed to things which we would be more familiar with now in what we would consider like a spiritual aspect. So the readings were about dreams and synchronicity and developing intuition, the Akashic records, astrology, past life relationships, soulmates, twin flames, other kind of esoteric subjects. Obviously at this point he had developed quite a following and so he had formed a new organization which is called the Association for Research and Enlightenment and that still exists to this day actually. They had a monthly bulletin that they would send out and it had to be capped at 300 people and the bulletin would contain things just like on healthy living, health hints, books on psychic subjects and other psychic phenomena. Members of his followers raised money and they were able to build an office, a library and a vault, which was finished in 1940-41 and added to the bottom story of the Casey's house. And that was where they had all of the records and where the records kind of stayed. There was no real kind of indexing organization of the um, transcripts of his work. But this was a great first step because at least it was an area where it could all be kind of organized at this time in his life members were from all over the place they were from protestant churches from the catholic church from christian science and spiritualism other kind of oriental religions perspective of his psychic work he was very respectful to other religions and he was very welcoming of people from other religions being part of his study groups but what he would say was that if participation in the study groups made them better members of their church and deeper into their faith, then it was good. But if anything that they were doing were taking them away from their faith, then it was bad. So it didn't matter like what you believed in as long as you believed in it, pretty much. Gacasey once again had a surge in popularity in 1943 when there was a biography written about him by There Is A River by um, Thomas Suguru. And also the Coronet magazine in 1943 did a publication on him calling him the Miracle Man of Virginia Beach. And obviously World War II was on at this time and it was taking a toll on American soldiers and on their families. And he felt like he couldn't refuse requests for help, especially for people who had loved ones that were missing in action or injured. So he increased the frequency of his readings to eight a day when he had originally only been doing two a day. So one in the morning at one at night. And eventually it would be this act of good deed that would kill him because it was taking a physical toll on his body. So, and that's essentially what happened. So he collapsed in August 1944 from strain. The outlook wasn't good. He was basically told, look, you're going to either rest until you're better or you're going to rest until you die. So himself and Gertrude went to the Virginia mountains to convalesce and he unfortunately suffered a stroke in September and eventually died of complications of that stroke in 1945 on January the 3rd. For his lifetime, he had given over 14,000 documented readings. And on top of everything that I've covered already in this podcast, he covered topics such as the Kingdom of Atlantis, the original course of the Nile River, 
you know, let alone thousands of medical diagnoses. So here are 10 of Edgar Cayce's kind of wilder predictions, I guess, that he's made. He says that a greater portion of Europe will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, that Japan will eventually go into the sea and that land will appear off the east coast of America. He says that there will be a shifting of the poles. He also said that there will be a time when the sun will darken and that this will be the signifier of a spiritually awakening event. He says that the city of Atlantis will finally be found near Bimini. The records of Atlantis will be open to those who are the spiritual initiates of the knowledge of the one God. Also, a new field of science will be developed based on psychic and spiritual phenomena. A city of gold will be discovered in the Gobi Desert. The New York's east coast and New York City itself will disappear. America's west coast will be destroyed and there will be widespread destruction in Los Angeles and San Francisco's. And they say that the Great Lakes will drain into the Gulf of Mexico through the Mississippi River. So like the entire landscape of America is going to change. It always amazes me how prophets always, always seem to turn into doomsday prophets at some point. So he predicted that the Battle of Armageddon was going to begin in 1999. So a lot of people turn around and they're like, oh, that didn't happen. Edgar Casey, the Battle of Armageddon is, didn't start in 1999. But didn't it? Maybe it did. I don't know. <laughs> I remember life being like distinctively better in the 90s. Maybe it did start in 1999. <laughs> And he also says that it wasn't like a physical war fought on earth, but rather it was going to be a spiritual war where there will be this struggle between the higher powers of light and the lower forces of darkness and that this battle will reign for 1000 years of earth time. And the reason for this war is to prevent souls from lower vibrations being able to reincarnate back to earth. So we've got to slog it out for a thousand years, stopping these low vibrational entities from being able to reincarnate. And so what that means, it means that only high vibrational beings are able to reincarnate on Earth. And essentially what that will do will create heaven on Earth. And it means that for 1000 years, we will live in perfect harmony. So now knowing this information and knowing that this is kind of the past 100 years of New Age history, starting with Elena Bevlowski and, you know, Edgar Cayce, Alastair Crowley, it all kind of makes sense now when you think about all these kind of new terms that get thrown out there, like indigo children and light workers and rainbow children, because what people who believe in this level of spirituality mean by that is that these children, these spirits have come in because they are essentially spiritual warriors that are here, even just by their own vibration, just by what they are, they are acting as agents for good and they are stopping lower vibrational entities from reincarnating. So it's kind of like, even though we're in the shittest of times, we are surrounded by the best kind of people. <laughs> so Edgar Casey didn't claim that this was just things which came to him from nowhere. He said that it had a very specific source. And that source where he was getting all this information about, you know, timelines past and present was the Akashic Record. And the Akashic Record is a compendium of universal events, thoughts, words, emotions, and intent to have ever have occurred past, present or future in all entities, life forms, timelines, not just for humans, for every living thing. So everything can be encoded 
on a non-physical plane of existence. And this is known as like the mental plane or the astral plane. So yeah, it comes from the Sanskrit word akasha, which means the ether of the sky. So obviously there is no scientific evidence for the existence of an Akashic record. But, you know, I when I think of the Akashic record, I think of First Nations people's kind of sense of spirituality. And especially where I'm from in Australia, the Indigenous people of Australia believe in something called the dream time, the dreaming. And the dreaming is an omnipresent timeline. So they believe that the dreaming is going on around them. I get shivers when I talk about this because I'm just, I find, um, you know, Indigenous culture and religion beliefs in Australia like really profound. (laughs) So they believe that the dreaming exists around them all the time. So the stories are continuously happening. Say the rainbow serpent story is happening right now as it did 5,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago because time's omnipresent. And that's an almost similar concept to the Akashic record where time's not linear, time's cyclical. What that means is that it gives a greater relevance to your sense of spirituality because the events which are happening are relevant now. It's not just something which happened in antiquity. You know, we're living amongst it now. Like the impact and effects of our religious beliefs will impact us daily life now and also it means that we can change the future and the past by going into that timeline almost like in the marvel universe like dr strange he can see different timelines that is essentially what the akashic record is like people who believe that they can go into the akashic record they can see things beginning to end of time and so if you have that knowledge then you can go back in time and you can go forward in time and stop things from happening or stop things from even like starting never happening at all so this sanskrit term akasha was introduced into the language of the new age movement by none other than than elena bavlasky and she was the one who characterized it as a kind of life force she says that it was an indestructible source of astral light so that's a direct quote and she would say that the record was I guess in a way a way of recording everything that we've been through in our pursuit for nirvana which is ultimate kind of perfection and balance so every person can achieve this state but it is through multiple years of karma and multiple years of feeling everything that you've made other people feel and the Akashic record is the logical place where everything is stored so you're probably sitting there and you're thinking like that's all great but what's the purpose of this then you know and I guess the purpose of it and you know in a sense of occultism which basically means like lifting the veil we're lifting the veil on things to be able to heal ourselves or to learn from something or to give purpose for something so you might go and have your Akashic record read because you might be like oh look you know I am really bad in relationships or I can't trust people or you know and you're looking for some kind of answer and someone comes back to you and says well you know the reason you don't trust people is because 500 years ago your husband who you were madly in love with ran off with your housemate and they staged your murder and you know you were heartbroken and so you carry that feeling from a past life and you need to release it and let it go and so that is the part that I always get stuck on like I'm a very spiritual person you know everyone that's been following me for a while now knows I've got so I have tarot cards I can read tarot I have you know <laughs> crystal and mineral collection that many you know, geologists would be jealous of I have had multiple spiritual psychic experiences but I still wonder 
Is it a crutch? Is it a spiritual crutch to just say, oh yeah, well, it was because my heart was broken in a past life? Do we allow ourselves? Is it is it a almost like a an excuse? No, that's not the word I'm looking for. Is it a indulgence to not take responsibility in this life, to not say it's choices I've made in this life that are the reason why I have emotional pain or physical pain or spiritual pain? Like, is it because I didn't wear proper running shoes? Is that the reason why I have a sore knee? Not because I was stabbed through the knee when I was a Roman soldier a thousand years ago. I hope that you can stick around for the next segment because I'm going to be joined by my friend Gabby, who's a spiritual therapist and a holistic health service provider. So hopefully she'll be able to help me answer some of those questions that I have around past lives, the astral and all other kinds of spiritual psychic questions. Alrighty. Okay. So now we're back and I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by my guest, Gabrielle. And she is a holistic counsellor and spiritual therapy counsellor. No, what did I say? Holistic counsellor and spiritual therapist, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Spiritual therapist. Yeah. So she is somebody who um, specialises in deep soul repair and also in guiding people uh, dedicated to shifting their fears and doubts on their spiritual journey and feeling more empowered through their spirituality. So welcome to uh, AS for Alien. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Alrighty, so we were talking just before today's episode um, is called Safe for Clairvoyant and we were talking about Edgar Casey like previously and yeah, isn't that just like a, it's a crazy story, the whole Christian mysticism combination. And how he, yeah, and how he was really quite dedicated to his church to an extent. Yeah, And especially during those times, you know, those times were so harsh, especially within the spiritual community. So it's so interesting, his story. Yes. Well, like we said, just he had such conflict between being spiritual medium, but also being a Christian, because like we said, they don't believe that you can actually, you know, engage with spirits or they call them familiar spirits. So they don't like it when people are, I guess, essentially conjuring. So that's the way that the church sees it. But like I said, that Christian mysticism, they kind of just combined it together. So yes, exactly. Like, I guess in a way, you know, the Akashic record is very similar to like the astral plane. Would you say that that it is? It's very similar. It's, it's an access outside of the physical realms. And when we are tapping into this kinds of energy, we're always going to be hit with the, but how, how is this possible? And, you know, because we are stepping outside of the physical plane, the idea that we're stepping outside of what is consciousness, Mm -hmm. um, people can carry a lot of fears around this. They can carry a lot of skepticism and whether this is from a religious perspective or a logical perspective, when we are looking at the Akasha, when we're looking at the astral realms, it gets to a point where it steps outside of logic, it steps out of knowing and into feeling in connection with your intuitive being. And for people, this can be quite scary. Yeah, because that's something that I sometimes struggle with. Like I wonder sometimes if when we we go and have like an Akashic record reading or if someone, you know, accesses our Um, records from the astral whether it is like you know an an excuse that we're making almost like an indulgence as opposed to taking you know responsibility for actions that we've made in this life by saying that it's leftover karma from a past life 
Yes, exactly. And if we were to think of ourselves as consciously and unconsciously just continuously living through every moment and therefore time does not exist, it's really hard for people to, I guess, come into that state where they're like, oh, I actually have to take responsibility for this very moment and I can't just pinpoint it to something that isn't in my conscious awareness in this life. And this is what we see a lot when we're working in the astral planes. And as you mentioned before, accountability, yes, we have past lives and yes, we can tap into future lives. But for this life right now, this timeline right now, it's about being accountable for that and being aware of the other things around us. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of the the balance between the two is accountability for what's happening now, but being aware of what's around you. Mm-hmm. So for myself and for the listeners, tell us a bit about your experience, like in your spiritual awakening and, you know, what you're doing now, like with your business and, you know, how, how, you're, how you approach your spirituality. So I started astral projecting as early as the age of five. And I grew up in a town called Port Pirie, which is a small country town in South Australia. And for about 18 years of my life, I experienced the negative sides of spirituality, the darker sides of spirituality. My home was very active. It was covered in portals. I would have, you know, sleep paralysis. I would have, you know, entities and spirits all through my home. And this is something that I grew up with. This, to me, this was normal. To me, this was just a, no, a normal day. Mm-hmm. And... I kind of had to get used to and went to a point of embracing that this is a part of spirituality. And it got to a point where when I left home, I knew that I wanted to help people feel, I guess, empowered in the things in which they couldn't explain Mm -hmm. and being able to be comfortable in their own level of darkness, whether that is emotional stresses or traumas or heartbreak or, you know, emotional wounds or egos. Mm -hmm. And, through my experiences when I was younger, led me to study my dual diploma in holistic counseling and complementary therapy and to really connect with a lot of incredible human beings to help me understand the both sides of light and dark when you're working with spirituality mm-hmm. and be able to help people reconnect with the energy and reconnect with their emotions to where they're no longer feeling hostage or victim to themselves, but rather using these elements of themselves, their negativity, their egos, their shadows to something more productive in their life, mm-hmm. whether that is turning their weaknesses into strengths, turning their you know, stresses and tensions and emotional baggage into something more productive where they can actually look back on life and be like, well, I came from this, but I turned it into this. Yeah. Because, you know, that is true. I believe in that sentiment. Like I always think, you know, when we're playing with concepts of like the light and the dark, like what's good for the spider is bad for the fly. So it's kind of yes. like what is good and what is bad, you know, so it's not, that's not a black and white answer. And I think especially when it comes to people's own like modalities of faith, you know, 100%, there is no right or wrong answer. There isn't. And especially in the spiritual industry, we can find ourselves just being in light. And it's the idea of just be positive and just be in love and light. But that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. The human experience allows us to have experiences of ego and experiences of trauma, experiences of, you know, lower frequency energies. 
Mm-hmm. This is part of the human experience. We are all we all have free will to experience negativity and anger and sadness. Mm-hmm. And these are all powerful tools that can help us grow as human beings. And with the spiritual realms, it's it's bringing that into your awareness and working with that and being able to use that towards something more productive. Mm-hmm. And as we were saying before in the beginning, um, we were having a chat before about how sometimes this can be so overwhelming for people. Mm-hmm. And they back off and they reject or they deflect or they deny their spirituality because it's overwhelming. But it's about embracing the essence of what makes spirituality as a whole. Yes, mm-hmm. there is the love and the light and the spirit guides and the higher self, but there's also other elements that we have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So if someone thinks that they're psychic, clairvoyant, you know, what are some of the signs? Like what were some of the signs that you went through that well, you know, short of seeing entities and things like, did you actually physically see entities like, or what, you know, what would people, you know, traditionally go through if they were beginning to believe or suspect that they have some kind of, you know, supernatural, super sensory ability? Um, With my experience, I was seeing, feeling and hearing entities and aliens and spirits from a very young age, but Typically, what you can start to experience is the synchronicities. So mm-hmm. with synchronicities, it is pulling your awareness into what is already in front of you and therefore bringing that perception in to where it's creating a message for you. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could be driving and suddenly you're driving the same route home and suddenly you're seeing all the same numbers yeah. or you're listening to a song and suddenly these lyrics are the exact same lyrics that you heard someone else say in a conversation the other day. And the synchronicity is, is typically a sign in which we are receiving a lot of higher awareness from our higher self, mm-hmm. messages that are coming through. And listening to your intuition, intuitive knowing is usually the first step into spirituality, um, into our psychic abilities. When we start developing strong intuition, that, that knowing before knowing or that knowing without having anything to back it up, these little hints and signs of intuition and synchronicities is usually the seeds that plant these psychic abilities and then they start to grow from there. So can people have more than one psychic ability? Like you mentioned that you had about three, but how, like what are the kind of main psychic abilities that you see in your clients or in yourself? Yeah, well, everyone has the ability to do absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. So there are so many, there's actually quite a few psychic abilities. Mm. Um, to my knowledge, there's almost about 20. Okay. Um, the main common that we hear are the clairs, which is your sentient, your clair audience, your clair um, voyance, and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Um, and these are the main ones. And the thing is, is because as human beings, we all have free will. So therefore, we all have access to psychic abilities. It just depends on the individual who is willing to implement this more in their life. Mm-hmm. And for some of us, it requires a little bit more practice. Some of us have a little bit more of a natural ability, but we all have the ability to master all of them if we choose to. It just requires. It just depends on whether you're choosing to implement that into your life. So we have, you know, your clear sentient and your clairvoyance, and, and as of before, these are the ones that are most common. Mm-hmm. And when we look into these ones here, we're looking at the senses. So clairsentient is our ability to feel, mm-hmm. um, and our clairvoyance is ability to see, clairaudience is our ability to hear, and these are all senses outside the physical ability of a human. 
Mm -hmm. So with our clear audience, this is where we'll start to hear voices if we're channeling spirits or we can hear noises, we can we can kind of draw in these messages mm -hmm. that is outside the normal human hearing range. Yeah. And with our clear, yeah. See, I wonder if there are people who are just living their lives and they wouldn't even know because they don't automatically think of, you know, those other the other clear senses like you know some people can even smell things so they can be like in a haunted house and they can smell like a burning building and that's from a fire that happened like 200 years ago like and they might be able like that's a strange smell or you know they can smell someone's perfume or they can smell like jasmine or roses like angel smells and they don't even like consider that as like a psychic ability but it is Oh, absolutely. And we all know that like we all have some to some degree level of em empathy. And when we have psychic empathy or, you know, um, claircognitance, people are already most likely experiencing psychic abilities, mm. but they're putting it down to, oh, I'm just feeling really drained when I'm hanging out with their, with in, in large groups. It could actually be that you are getting drained, your energy is getting drained because you are your psychic um, empath is opening up your energy to where you're getting drained. Yeah. Um, it could be, you know, people are like, oh, I'm, I'm, I keep seeing things or I keep having these flashes of light in my eyes. I must be having an eye problem. Well, that is true. That is possibility. Or you could actually be seeing sparks of angels and sparks of energies and auras. Um, and I think that when, you know, nothing is wrong with embracing the possibility of spiritual symptoms um, rather than just physical. And I see this a lot with my clients who are saying to me, I don't know why, but that one coworker, I just always feel drained when I'm having a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, okay, let's just draw on that a little bit. So you feel fine before you see them and you feel bad afterwards. Yeah. So great. You're most likely absorbing their energy. That is a psychic ability. Mm -hmm. And it's about mastering that a little bit and, so is that how, that. so is that almost like the opposite? Like, so in that way, because, you know, people have thrown around like the term, you know, um, emotional vampire, you know, so is that, yes. is, is that what that is, you know, or is that, is that different? They, they're taking it away from you. You're not absorbing their bad energy. Cause I guess like, you know, that's the opposite of it because if you're taking bad energy and transmutating it, then, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's, um, an empathic ability whereas a psychic vampire is different psychic vampires they do have to an extent they have this level of awareness of what they're doing these oh, are okay. people who perhaps are dumping their energy on you they're they are not necessarily manipulative or narcissistic although you can get them in that sense but they are energetically dumping energy on you in order to feel good and this is where we look into boundaries people who perhaps are not respecting people's boundaries who are asking too much of someone emotionally and they're dumping all their energy onto a person and however if you are a psychic empath you are like a sponge you're going to absorb energies really really quickly and that's why it's important that an individual is aware of their psychic abilities and has a level of awareness of how to control that so they're not absorbing other people's energies because being a psychic empath can be really powerful. You know, you can have the ability to connect with someone's emotions without them saying anything, mm -hmm. without them doing anything. You can enter a room and be like, okay, there was a fight in here. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. There is an energy. Someone's sick in the house. 
However, you need to be able to be able to, you know, navigate that energy and navigate that psychic ability where it's not having a negative effect on you. Mm-hmm. And that's where psychic boundaries step in. So do you think that that is, you know, a lot of people that come to you for healings or who who have this, um, the draw to, to go and see a psychic healer or a holistic counsellor, is that basically almost like the core of what their problem is is that they're they're over their hypersensitivity to feeling and then it kind of triggers everything else off that and just not being aware or embracing it okay you know um i see this a lot with my clients who are rejecting aspects of themselves Mm -hmm. and creating dense energy because what happens is there is energy behind every intention, every thought we think, everything we say, everything we do, there is energy that we invest into that. Mm-hmm. And if we are not fully aware of that energy in the body and if we're not tapping into our psychic abilities and, for example, with clairsentience or clairaudience or clairvoyance, aware of what's around us, aware of when our energy shifts, mm-hmm. aware of when something around us doesn't feel right, we're not listening to our intuition. We are rejecting that energy flow in the body and that can create density. That can actually impact us physically, emotionally, in our relationships. So it's not just about you developing strong intuition and developing your psychic abilities, but how to be aware of your own energy and the energy around you to the point before it gets, you know, before it starts to affect you mentally and emotionally and physically. Mm -hmm. So before you started doing this, as a profession, what what was it that, you know, kind of was the catalyst where you go, actually, you know what, I want to help people? Like that what took you from being a like a person who was had psychic abilities to someone who wanted to to realize that you could help people and heal people? Um, I think it was when I left school. Um, I just I was in a state where I couldn't escape the energy and the entities around me in my home. And I stepped out of home and I left. I went to Adelaide and studied for a little bit. And and I dropped out of university and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I went and saw a medium. Mm -hmm. And that very medium was who changed my life. And she really instilled a lot of the seeds around spirituality. Mm -hmm. And she gave me the best advice I had ever received in my life. And she said, the moment you realize the difference between serving and being of service you will find your purpose and then during that stage I did some traveling and whatnot and that's when I realized I have experienced what I've experienced in my life to now help people you know I, I'm a big believer that we experience what we experience in order to master that experience and then share that and teach that to others who are in that stage of themselves and I think the catalyst for me was when I realized that I can either continue to reject what happened when I was a child in my home and the you know, negative spiritual experiences that I had, or I can use it to help another individual who perhaps is terrified to sleep at night or seeing things that they can't explain and be that person for someone else. Okay. Yeah. So what has been so far like your most profound moment as a healer, like helping someone? You know, have you seen those breakthrough moments? Yeah, I think it would be the physical um, changes in a person. Um, I I had a client 
he for weeks he was experiencing terrible nightmares and terrors at night to the point where he couldn't sleep with his girlfriend in the bed because he was afraid that he was going to hurt her Mm. and he saw you know medical help and he had sleep medications and antidepressants with him and he said before I try this I want to see you and just see if you can help and within two sessions um we actually did a lot of clearing of um trauma in from his childhood we cleared a lot of entities that had attached during his sleep and he never had any nut terrors ever again he's never had any issues Mm -hmm. um another occurrence was a woman of mine a client of mine who had ear pain for 10 years and doctors couldn't explain it no one could explain it we did a session together where i extracted a cosmic implant that wasn't installed when she was seven Mm -hmm. and the pain was gone and she'd never had the pain again yeah and i think it's the yeah the physical changes that happen for people that were probably the most profound Mm. what's a cosmic implant so we have cosmic implants that are installed by um, extraterrestrials, so your aliens. Okay, yeah. Um, and these are intelligent implants, chips, trackers, intelligent energies that have been implanted on the physical body um, that contain a particular purpose or intention. They are usually foreign. Wow, that is like a so. In your experience, then, so you you're finding is it is it becoming more common now that there are these like extraterrestrial energies that are coming in, not just like terrestrial kind of earthbound energies. Is that like something which is becoming more common, or is it kind of always been around? It's always been around. Okay, you know when we're looking at astral planes, we are accessing different dimensions, different realms, different timelines. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not alone on this planet, and um, when we do access these abilities to go outside the physical planes, we are also interacting with energies and entities that are not just on the physical plane as well. Um, and when we are looking at this, we are looking at different alien species and their own agendas, and how they can actually impact the body. Um, the physical body is much like a battery pack um, and a lot of souls do come to earth to clear their karmas and their traumas and to go through human experiences. However, lower frequency cosmic entities and agendas can use that very essence of the human experience to implant technologies and things like that for their own agendas. Mm. So, yeah, sorry. (laughs) Oh, no, no, I was just swallowing. <laughs> That's all right. Continue. <laughs> um, so we have, you know, and this is the thing. We look at our spirit guides. Where do our spirit guides come from? We have spirit guides from many different planets, um, many different universes. However, we also, again, we share this universe with light and dark. And cosmic implants are typically um, attached to lower frequency energies of the body. That's how they attach. Lower frequency energy can only attach to that of its own frequency. So they're typically attaching to a trauma or, a, you know, a wound, an ego. And this is typically where clients will come and see me and we will go in and fully extract the cosmic implants. And, for example, um, I had a client who had a cosmic implant that was attached to a childhood trauma. And this implant was enhancing this energy from her trauma and it actually had created sciatica, 
in her lower back. Okay. Because, yeah, I was wondering, so, like, the one in her ear, would that have been from, like, being bullied or having someone, like, you know, hearing negative things about yourself? Is that is that, that kind of, that's how it would yes. work? This came from um, when she was a child and an adult had actually said a very negative, um, you could almost say abusive comment to her. Mm-hmm. And that energy, as I guess said before, everything's got energy behind it. That energy got trapped in her ear. And when it was left over time, cosmic implants, they attached to lower frequency energies in the body and it had attached to her ear. And what it was doing was it was making it hard for her to understand things clearly when they were being projected to her. Okay. So she had a lot of issues with authority. She had issues with her boss. She had issues with her parents because she always felt like they were saying something that wasn't actually being said. Okay. So similar but different, I guess, is when you speak about like entity attachments, like how do we get entities attached to us? Same process. Entities attached to that of its own frequency. And if you have egos, traumas, karmas, wounds, shadows that you haven't dealt with, you're leaving yourself open like a door and lower frequency energies will feed off that low frequency. Um, they will feed off that low energy okay. and they'll be because it's dense energy and they feed off that dense energy. And this can, where they, where they can create physical uh, issues for people. They can cause back pain, chest pain. They can cause um, tension in the body. They can even cause mental and emotional issues. Mm-hmm. They can cause issues with your moods, with your hormones. And it, and there's different levels in which this energy can manipulate the physical and the mental body, mm-hmm. but they attach through that of its own frequency, which is why sometimes you, you'll be like, why do I feel angry? Why do I feel this angry? It's enhancing. It's, it's the emotion that's already existing in the body. Okay. So when we're looking at entities, we're looking at how they are manipulating the energy that's already in the body. Okay. So, you know, have you had through this any kind of paranormal, scary kind of experiences? Yes. Yeah. Um, My home, as I said before, was very, very active. Mm -hmm. Um, I I saw, I was seeing aliens at five years old. And I've had, um, my most terrifying experience was at the house and I was laying in bed and I could hear something growling at me and mm-hmm. I could see the window was slightly open where enough light was able to come through and I could see this big black shadow and it started to crawl on my bed and I could feel the mattress sinking mm-hmm. a little bit and I was fully cold and I remember just freezing and I was 19 at the time. I came back home to visit yeah. and I just heard this growling in my ear and I could feel this heaviness in the bed and uh, I just remember laying there and I could feel my body sinking into itself and uh, I could feel I feel myself restricting and feeling so tense and I managed to call in Archangel Michael and I had to kind of pull myself out of the room and I woke up like I woke up the next day and I had bruises on my body. Wow. So yeah. So was that like a shadow being? Like what what did you think that it was? 
I feel like it was an entity, um, typically. Uh, shadow beings are a lot more manipulative. Um, I've had experiences with a few shadow beings. They will typically be more of a presence. Um, mm. Entities can have a lot more of a physical impact. Um, I've had experiences with a few entities that have left marks on my body um, when I was younger and things like that. But shadow beings, they can be more of an appearance um, when they appear themselves. Yeah. And they are a lot more manipulative. Because I get a lot of emails from listeners about shadow beings and actually like the listener story that I'm going to be reading later, that is it's on shadow beings as well because I've had um, sleep paralysis myself and I've had like experiences with shadow beings in sleep paralysis and including one time where I even put myself into an altered state because I was so afraid of what I had seen previously that I wanted to confront it. So I actually made myself like in that state where I could talk to this thing, like on the level, yes. you know, yes. and it appeared to me as a seven foot tall, like hooded figure. And yeah. I just remember staring at it because I basically put myself into that um, mindset by meditating, but with my hands in the air. So like, I was actually like still like letting myself go but when you've got your hand in the air you're you still have enough conscious awareness that you're still not falling asleep and I could see I saw this thing appear at the end of my bed and I'll never forget because it said to me in my mind am I real or am I not real and then it laughed at me <laughs> yeah but I was like all right but I wasn't afraid of it then because I had like met it on my own terms like it had mm. come to me like in my time of vulnerability, like in my sleep state. And then I had decided to go, you know what, actually I'm going to come knock on your door now, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> and shadow beings have been known to suck the energy out of people. Yeah. Um, they, uh, you know, entities will try to attach to you. Yeah. Shadow beings will suck the energy out of you. Oh, that's and, so scary. But they're very, very similar with its intention. And yeah. yeah, I can relate. I remember seeing, I was laying in bed um, and I turned the light off and there was this big shadow being across the entire wall. Mm. And I remember just feeling so much hatred, so much hatred towards me. Mm-hmm. And I would flick the light on and it would go. And then I would flick the light. And I remember I checked everything. I was trying to figure out like maybe this shadow was created from a lamp. Yeah, Couldn't figure it, it out. And that's the other thing. When you start developing your your psychic abilities and you start developing strong intuition, you can pick up on these energies a lot more and almost prevent yourself from getting in situations Mm -hmm. that you may not be aware of if you are just deflecting yourself spiritually. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having spoken about that, you know, when people, if people choose to go down the road of wanting to maybe try astral projection or trying to access their own Akashic records. Like how are some ways that people can protect themselves? Because obviously, you know, the way that I kind of see, see these, you know, the mental, the mental realm, the Akashic realm is it's almost like the dark web, you know, so you can go on the dark web, but if you don't know what you're doing, you could come across anybody that says, no, trust me, I'm trustworthy, but really, you know, it's not, it's not beyond any kind of lower vibrational entity to lie or use deceit. 
you know, so how do you know and how do you protect yourself? You're exactly right. Uh, This is what a lot of clients come and see me for is because they have made these attempts or even unintentionally in our projection projection at night Mm -hmm. and we'll do what is called a soul retrieval because when you go into the astral, you have to be aware of how you get up and how you get down Mm. because you can leave fragments of your energy elsewhere and this is where people will feel really, really drained after, they'll feel really tired, really airy-fairy, or they'll start to have attachments in that way. So my biggest advice for people is to always ground yourself down before you go up. Mm-hmm. Grounding yourself down before you enter an astral plane is going to help you reconnect with your energetic, your energetic and physical body when you come back down. Mm-hmm. So if you were to think of yourself kind of like a tree, you want to instill strong roots so that no matter what happens in the astral realm, you can come back and feel settled. Mm-hmm. This is going to really help people feel a lot more comfortable coming down from an astral as well. When in terms it comes to protection, I'm a big believer of setting the intention for where you're going. This is something I cannot stress enough. If you're going into the astral plane because you are curious or just to see if you can do it, that's where you're going to get yourself into some trouble because you need to set some kind of intention. It's like if I was to give someone a map and say, all right, jump in the car and drive wherever you want. You throw the map outside and the other's going to wing it. Mm. You know, you want to have some kind of direction, some kind of purpose, some kind of intention when you're going to the astral. And this might be I want to connect with my spirit guides. I want to go into a past life. I want to go to a different planet. I want to go into a different timeline. Yeah. That's no worries. But if you're going up there to say to yourself, I just want to see if I can, I want to see yeah. what's out there. If you say things like that, you're setting the intention of anything can come in because I'm curious to see if anything exists. Yeah. Well, I guess that that's um, like you don't just get in a plane. A pilot doesn't get in a plane without a flight plan, you know, so you want to be yes. able to map it A to B <laughs> so you've got enough fuel to get back and you want to know how you're going to get back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. You want to play it safe. And I guess sometimes people think, oh, you know, it's I'll be fine. It's whatever, whatever. It's all just meditation. Mm-hmm. But this is where people will start to experience things at night. They will start to have strange dreams. They'll start to hear things. And that's when they'll start to come to see me. And I'm like, well, where did you go? What did <laughs> yeah. you do? What was your intention? <laughs> why, so do strange you things, why do strange things always seem to happen at night? Um, because you're pulling your, so when you sleep, when you're going to sleep, particularly in REM sleep, the consciousness is resting. Mm-hmm. You're in a lot more of an unconscious state. You're in, in a lot more of a relaxation and meditative state when we sleep. So we are we are kind of opening the spiritual doors a lot easier. Okay. So this is where the whole idea of the witching hour comes into play. Yeah, because I always so, thought too, like the veil is something to do with the sun not being, you know, when it's nighttime, the veil is its thinnest or something. Yes, yes. And think of it as well. When we are awake and we're conscious, mm-hmm. we have the ability to think of so many different things. We are constantly distracted. We can look at our phones. We are constantly stimulated. We are very much in the physical body. Okay. But when we are asleep, when it's nighttime, you know, we're starting to slow down mentally and emotionally and consciously. And this is where we can become in a lot more meditative state. And this is kind of the prime time if you wanted to astral travel because you're in that state already. Yeah. Because um, astral travel really is your conscious state and your physical body or your energetic body, physical body separating. 
-hmm. And you can, with intention, take yourself out of your physical state and enter other realms. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of where you want to be in that meditative state anyway. Yeah. When it comes to protection, I would encourage for people to, first of all, ground themselves down. Really important, ground yourself down, really create a strong foundation within yourself. Mm-hmm. Then practice setting a strong intention of what it is that you want to get out of that experience. Mm-hmm. And the way in which I encourage people to do is always to start in a safe place. Okay. So for myself, rather than just be like, okay, I'm just I'm in my I'm in my bedroom, I'm just gonna go somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, go somewhere in the astral that is safe. That is your checkpoint. Yeah. Right. If we're gonna the analogy of the of the plane. Mm-hmm. having a layover yeah <laughs> having you know having a, a stopping point yeah. and this is the place you start and this is the place that you leave from mm-hmm. and this really is a place that you can kind of make sure that nothing is in your energy field and you're in your safest place that you know that you're not going to get stuck anywhere mm-hmm. so for me I always go to what I call the light room and it's just this big room that I visualize that is white and it's light and I can see everything in the room. So Mm -hmm. when I come out of the astral and I go into this place, I can be sure that nothing's going to come back back with me. Exactly Mm -hmm. right. So I encourage people to always kind of create a safe space for them to begin and end their astral travels before they come back into the physical. Mm -hmm. So I've got a couple of questions here now for you from my listeners. So um, one question is, How does someone deal with grief in a healthy way? So grief is something that I think is such a human experience. And I dealt with grief for years of my life. Um, I lost both my grandparents when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And for four years I dealt with grief and I didn't deal with it well. To deal with grief is to acknowledge that you're not doing it alone. Mm-hmm. reaching out to support, knowing that you don't have to kind of sit with these emotions yourself and allow yourself to go through the flow of these emotions, mm-hmm. these emotions of loss, these emotions of denial, these emotions of anger mm-hmm. and feeling supported in that, having healthy uh, connections around you so that you can go through these emotions in a state that is safe. Mm-hmm. So whether you're letting your co workers know, you're letting your family know and saying, this is what I'm going to be going through. I'm going to go through it how I need to go through it and allow yourself to go through that process. Because when we go through these emotions and we allow ourselves to just embrace the part of grief, mm-hmm. we can eventually get to that place where we can get to acceptance mm-hmm. and that acceptance of ourself and honoring ourselves that we allowed ourselves to grieve. Because nothing is wrong with grief and nothing should, we should never feel weak or afraid to grief. It's a part of life as much as it's a part of death. Mm. And death in itself, I always, I, this is something that I always love to share with people who are going through grief that see me for, for sessions. I say when, when people who have moved on, it's not that we lose contact with them. It's that we are learning a different language of how we communicate with them. Mm. and when oh, we really allow beautiful. ourselves yeah and it's just learning a different language to speak with those and not feeling like you have to speak with them but learning a different language yeah. and it could be the feather that falls out in front of you 
It could be the clouds that paint a picture. It could be a song that plays in the radio, the synchronicities mm-hmm. and learning a different language of how you can communicate with that person. And most importantly, just giving yourself, be, being gentle with yourself and giving yourself permission to go through these emotions so that you can get to the place where you can start learning that language. Mm. So another question here too is what advice do you have for like someone new to a spirit, a new spiritual, want, wanting to become more in touch with their spirituality? So my, my very first advice is it's okay if you're overwhelmed. It's okay if it's something that is a little bit too much. Um, when we start opening, opening this door, getting yourself into a community, you know, reach out to people on social media, start following accounts that are resonating with you because this stuff can feel lonely. It can feel overwhelming. So having a, having a community with you can be really, really important. Take it slow. Spirituality is something that like our psychic abilities, we have to take this slow. It's all about divine time. If we push ourselves too quickly into wanting to see things or wanting to experience things, we can push ourselves to the point where it's so overwhelming and then we're like, oh my gosh, I need to reject this. I can't, I can't handle this anymore. Mm-hmm. Just allow yourself to go at the pace in which is divine time and perhaps start small. Start with learning about crystals and how crystals can help you. Start perhaps learning with oracle decks before you jump into tarot. Mm-hmm. Perhaps start off with simple guided meditations until you can feel confident in doing it yourself. Perhaps working with a spiritual therapist or a mentor. You know, this is something that is it's like anything. It's like training a muscle. It's not doing it alone because there is so many support that you can get out there. And the great thing about this day and age is that there's so much information that we can draw in. Yeah. And start with developing your intuition first at the pace in which is being presented to you. So rather than trying to stretch yourself too far and trying to do too much, just start small. Just allow yourself to, with divine time, learning about intuition, developing that sense of safety with the community and allow yourself to go through the wave because you'll find that you'll be led to where you need to be spiritually. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Gabby, for joining me and teaching me so much about clairvoyance and the world around us and how we can navigate the spirituality that comes to us naturally and also being able to balance like the good and the bad and that sometimes the bad isn't isn't that bad at all really like that's a good way of looking at it isn't it because you <laughs> exactly. can learn from it <laughs> so exactly would you right. so where can everybody find you so you can find me on instagram gabrielle.iamdivine or you can look me up on my website which is www.iamdivine.co and this is where you find all my services and um, all my information as well. And I've got a lot of um, listeners that live overseas. So you have like Zoom healings and things like that as well. If people have heard this and resonate with it, they can get in contact with you and still do healings over online, can't they? Absolutely. So all my services are available all over the world. You can do it via Zoom or in person. Fantastic. And you've got a YouTube channel as well. I do, yes. The New Earth, uh, the New Earth Connection is, is a beautiful space that I share with my friend Benj, and we talk about all things mental health, um, mindfulness, and meditation. Yeah, I really love your chakra series that you've got going on at the moment. You Thank you. We're on to throat chakra at the moment. So. Oh, really? Oh, good. Speaking <laughs> <Yeah>. your truth. <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. 
Okay, so I hope that you enjoyed my interview with Gabby. She's a very interesting young lady. And just that information again for you, uh, her website is iamdivine.co and you can also find her on Instagram. Her handle is gabrielle.iamdivine. And yeah, so hopefully you take a moment to um, check her out, show her some love. And if you resonate with the things that she spoke about, make sure to reach out to her either on Instagram or via her website. And uh, yeah, she's a lovely girl to connect with. So thank you very much, Gabby, for coming on today. If you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I've got somebody that I would like to hear Patrice talk about something with, you know, send me an email. Put the feelers out there. If you're somebody that wants to come on and have a conversation about something, you know, What's the worst that could happen? Alrighty, so we're back with the third and final segment of this week's show, which is, of course, our listener story. And here I have a story from a longtime listener, first time caller, Comrade Commissar Yuri. He's a familiar name in my comment section, so I'm very appreciative of all the comments and the likes and the engagement that he puts on my videos each week because it really helps me uh, get, get in the logarithm's favor because we all must hail the logarithm. So, yes, thank you very much. Alrighty, so the story starts like this. I was on a school trip to Dartmoor from the UK for a week, way back when I was in either years three or four. We had separate dormitories for the boys, girls and the teachers. All of the kids had bunk beds with railings that went around the top bunk to stop people from falling off. Back then, I was terrified of the dark, so being stuck on a top bunk, staring out into the darkness and not sleeping much wasn't too fun. I believe it was on the Wednesday night. Must have been about two or three in the morning. As usual, I was just looking out into the dark void that was in the middle of the room. Imagine my terror when this black shadow cloaked figure appeared from within the natural darkness of the room, just like it materialized there. The cloaked head turned to face me, and it felt as if we were staring at each other for hours. In reality, though, it was probably more like minutes. Eventually, it looked away and headed to the right side. Next thing I hear was this scream, followed by a thud. Teachers threw the door open, lights came on, and it had transpired that one of the other boys had somehow, while asleep, gotten over the railings and thrown himself off, screamed and landed on his head. Needless to say, yeah, I definitely didn't get too much sleep after that, nor did I tell anyone what I saw. Why would they believe some kid who was afraid of the dark? Furthermore, eventually when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, I of course freaked out when the Nazgul appeared over the darkness of Weathertop, because when it happened back in the dormitories, it was pretty much the same. Just to add to this, this had happened way before the movies came out, and he didn't even know about the books. Hope you enjoyed my experience, Patrice, and keep doing the podcast. They're quite fun to listen to. Thank you. Thank you very much fucking shadow people right what the fuck are they though like what are they (laughs) that though is the million dollar question because that's the question that everybody's asking like what the fuck are these fucking things that are just thinking that they can come into our bedrooms at night and watch us while we sleep like it's probably the most terrifying thing to see an entity like this in your house like you go out on a ghost tour a ghost hunt you're in a haunted graveyard you're in a, you know, asylum, you're in a jail, you're somewhere where there's activity and you see something like this, you're kind of prepared for it mentally. But, you know, it's different when you're in your own space and something has come into your space and it's like looking for you. Fortunately for me, I haven't had that many shadow figure encounters 
aside from the one that I experienced when I induced the sleep paralysis and I saw the seven foot tall hooded shadow figure. But yeah, that's a good thing for me because I'm pretty sure that if I did, I would drop dead on the spot because I cannot handle the idea of waking up and just seeing a blacker than black void because I'm pretty sure it would feel like it's going to suck your soul out. And that's what Gabby was saying in the interview, that that's what they do, is that they suck your soul out. It was bad enough for me one day that I accidentally had a blazer hung up that I'd forgotten about and I'd woken up and thought that there was someone with incredibly sharp shoulder blades like looking at me. So after reading this story, I thought I'd do a little bit of investigation work like Hercule Paddle. And so I googled hooded shadow figures and I set the parameters for the search from 1980s to 1999. You know, there was mention of shadow figures as types of hauntings in a story written in the New York Times in 1999. So then I got excited because I came across a website which I thought had originally been made in 2002. But on closer perusal, I realized that it had been updated in uh, 2019. So I'm not actually sure if it was a, a website that has kind of been around since 2002 and it was just kind of updated in 2019. So Wikipedia tells me that it was Coast to Coast with Art Bell that helped bring up the topic of shadow people for the first time. So he had on um, a guest called Thunder Strikes, who was also known as Harley Swiftier Reagan. And during the show, people were encouraged to submit drawings of shadow people that they had seen. And basically they got put up on the Coast to Coast website. And that kind of, you know, <laughs> brought out a lot of people's pictures that saw the same thing. And I think it resonated with a lot of people. And so in that same year, Heidi Hollis had also been on the Art Bell show to talk about shadow people because she had had her book published, which was called The Secret War. A lot of people don't realize, but this book had been in circulation since 1997 and it was only officially published in 2001. Heidi Hollis considers these entities to be pure evil. So fast forward to 2018 and professional witch and psychic Renee Watt told the Bustle website that shadow people are a bit of an enigma in the paranormal community, that they are often thought of as ghosts or a collection of negative energy. But that is true with most paranormal phenomena. There is no finite answer. According to what shadow people can appear in different forms and may even indicate that someone is under psychic attack. Many experts in this field also make the connection between these shadow people and extraterrestrial life, that there could be another worldly origin or have a correlation with alien abduction experiences. Skeptics and medical professionals will, you know, chalk seeing shadow people up to just being sleep paralysis. And, you know, that is a legitimate explanation. And I'm sure that there are some instances where sleep paralysis is the explanation, but you know what, when people see them, when they're completely lucid, just like watching TV, you know, that's not really a, an answer which is acceptable to me. You know, other potential answers could be like, you know, sleep deprivation, drug use, or even just like intense stress. And we can't discount those, but I feel like there is enough encounters, enough stories that people have to realize that there is something going on with this phenomena. 
I'm taking this information off of hauntedoc.com, which stands for Haunted Orange County. And they say that shadow people or shadow creature activity can be defined as follows. This is a type of haunting activity that has no real explanation. They are different from ghosts, and they are usually shapeless dark masses, mostly seen with your peripheral vision. They are known to do things that are different from ghosts. They can move between walls. They have no human features. They wear no clothes except for the hat man and the hooded figure shadow creatures. People who encounter them have a feeling of dread. Clairvoyants that encounter shadow people say that they do not feel they are human and consider them non-human entities. Shadow people have no discernible mouth, noses, or facial expressions. Some are seen as child-sized dark humanoids. I'm like getting shivers reading this. They really scare me, guys. Like, ugh. Some people say that they may be made up of dark smoke or dark steam. At times when they move, they appear to be moving on an invisible track from one place to another, such as a toy train or a small-scale railroad track. They have been seen to hop or what appears to be a strange dance. They are known to stare at the floor. Two common types of shadow people are the hat man, who looks like he or she is wearing a 1930s fedora hat, and the hooded figure, which looks like a shadow person who has a hood over their head. The hood and hat stand out as clothing, but otherwise they are not wearing any clothing at all. There are also reports of shadow animals, such as the shadow in the form of a cat, with no discernible mouth, nose or eyes. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. The weirdest thing to me is the fedora hat. Like... Why the fucking, why a fucking fedora hat? You know, it's the most random thing. It's so random. So I've been trying to look for correlations that would make the fedora hat kind of important to any kind of, you know, non-corporeal, non-human entity. The only thing that I can kind of piece together is that the fedora hat was invented or, you know, came to popularity in the 1880s, which is the same time as the advent of the spiritualist movement. So in 1982, there was a play called Fedora, which was written by the French playwright Victorien Sardot, in which the main character wore a hat similar to that classic style. And when Prince Edward started beginning to wear a fedora in the mid-1920s, that saw the hat boost in popularity um, in England and then eventually around the world. And bizarrely as well, they're not the only paranormal kind of entity that's known to wear a fedora hat, because when you think of a fedora hat... You may not even necessarily think of the hat man straight away. If someone said, what paranormal weird thing wears a fedora hat, you probably think instantly of men in black. So maybe the hat man and the men in black are two sides of the same coin. And that connects the hat man and the UFO abduction phenomena because who else is also included and comes up in alien stories is the fucking men in black and the hat man. They look the same. They're there too. Another fucking creepy dude that is sometimes, you know, illustrated with a fedora hat is Indrid Cold. And I was only just speaking about Indrid Cold and Mothman and his connection to the whole events in Point Pleasant in 1967, literally the other day. And there were men in black encounters as well involved with the Mothman. And also, like, don't fucking Google Indrid Cold because the fucking fan art is so scary and I should be thinking about going to bed. Instead, I was looking at pictures of Indrid Cold and now I'm going to have nightmares of the Smiling Man. So, I don't know. I feel like it's fucking worse than Hat Man. So, I'm going to float this theory now. What if the Hat Man is not what is making you have the anxiety or making you feel like the dread and hatred 
what if the hat man is almost like some kind of Van Helsing monster slayer and it's actually trying to help you? At the very least, that's going to help me sleep better. So I'll leave you with this question, my creepy friends. Have you seen the hat man? Have you seen a shadow person? Have you had sleep paralysis? Because I want to hear your stories. Okay, so this is the part where I leave you. But the good news is, is if you haven't already checked out the bonus episode on John D that I've put out this week, you can just go and listen to that now and it'll be just like, you know, I'm there with you again. The modern marvels of the internet. We could just start it from the beginning if you want to, you know, relive the fucking Edgar Casey story all over again. Might be good to put you to sleep. Please like, comment and subscribe. Leave a review. Leave me a five-star rating. Pledge your firstborn child to me. Guess Rumpelstiltskin's first name. Kiss the princess. Slay the dragon. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But anyway, if you want to join me on my social media pages, you can find all of the details in the description box below. Let's keep the conversation going. I'm very active on all of my social networks. Don't be shy. I'm very friendly. I'm always down for a chat. So make sure you come and say hello. All right. Thank you so much, guys. And I'm going to catch you next week. Alrighty. Bye-bye.